sense-making practices that are not philosophical. The price of not engaging in such practices would be that some part of her inner life would remain unexpressed. That is how I understand the final clause in the passage just read, particularly its adjective total. Here again, that final clause. The human being in the concrete may find herself forced to express the contents and results of her philosophical mind in a concrete way as penetrated by her heart and vision, her imagination and feeling, all in order in this way to have and provide a total expression of her inner life. Philosophical thinking alone, it seems, is simply not enough, not up to bringing our inner life the satisfaction that it seeks. The second passage I'll now read clarifies the nature of the dissatisfaction that philosophical thinking alone can, one might in some moods be tempted to say, must leave us with. Poetry, says Hegel, frees the affective and perceptual forms of consciousness and their content from servitude to thinking and conducts them victoriously to reconciliation with the universality of thought. The dissatisfaction, then, is the dissatisfaction of non-freedom, a non-freedom which remains a distinct possibility in the absence of art-making. For this second passage, the one I've just read, would seem to suggest that philosophical thought is just not well suited to the complete liberation of the human person in all her affective and perceptual capacities. And this passage seems to suggest that there are two distinct ways in which those capacities can remain unfree. First, the capacities themselves, perceptual and affective, those capacities themselves as modes of consciousness can remain unredeemed by philosophical thought. This is a serious form of unfreedom since these capacities are constitutive of human personhood. But, and this is the second form of unfreedom, Hegel goes on to say that the objects and contents of affective and perceptual consciousness can remain equally unfree. And if we think of just how extensive are the objects and contents of affective and perceptual consciousness, then we can begin to see still more vivid vividly the specter of our unfreedom. It's not, I think, merely the case that some small portion of our lives remain unfree, a portion that we might lament but ought not be all that bothered by. There would, without art making, be a kind of generalized unfreedom about human life. And there could be no worse position for the human being. For, as Hegel writes, freedom is the highest destiny of spirit. It consists in this, that in what confronts the subject, there is nothing alien 
and it is not a limitation or barrier. On the contrary, the subject finds herself in it. All distress and every misfortune has vanished. The subject is reconciled with the world, satisfied in it, and every opposition and contradiction is resolved. We might call these two types of unfreedom very crudely sociological and constitutive. Sociological unfreedom would be a way of describing what it would mean for the human subject to find in the objects and contents of her affective and perceptual capacities something to which she remained unreconciled. Constitutive unfreedom, by contrast, would be a way of describing what it would mean for the human subject to find not in the contents of her affective and perceptual capacities, but in those very capacities themselves, something to which she was unreconciled. As an example of the former, what I call the sociological unfreedom, take the activity of labor, an activity which one might well come to see on the basis of reading the phenomenology or philosophy of right as an essential part of modern life, essential in the sense that free human personhood might be impossible without it. One might well, again on the basis of philosophical argument, seek to rationally affirm the value of labor and the virtues of thrift, diligence, and perseverance associated therewith. But it would be one thing to rationally affirm this and quite another to be, quote, victoriously led to reconciliation with the universality of thought. That, Hegel thinks, might take the work of the arts in a manner not unlike the following. In looking at a painting of a laboring citizen and being struck by, quote, the intertwining of that man and his task, one might, Hegel thinks, come to see a harmony of the subject and the particular character of his activity in his nearest circumstances an intertwining that is also a form of intimacy. It is what draws us to the self-sufficiency of such an explicitly total, rounded, and perfect existence, the existence represented in the painting. Thus, Hegel continues, the interest we may take in pictures of objects like those he's just mentioned objects which take up what he later calls the prose of daily life, our interest does not lie in those objects themselves, but in the soul of liveliness, represented liveliness, which speaks to every uncorrupt mind and free heart, and is to it an object in which it participates and takes joy. Hegel found this achievement of the representation of the intertwining of man and his task, an intertwining which he calls a form of intimacy, most fully worked out in Dutch art of the 17th century. There, the prose of life, laboring, going to market, 
tending the garden, is shown to be not only not inhospitable to human freedom, but worthy of affirmation, philosophical and affective. And so, in some sense, the sociological and constitutive forms of unfreedom are, or at any rate can be, overcome in the arts at one and the same time. There is in, in Hegel no suggestion that the arts provide the proper account of the sociology of modern life. That is clearly the task of another mode of philosophical writing. The suggestion was only that there might remain a more complete mode of affirmation, a mode that overcame the residual forms of unfreedom I spoke briefly about earlier. And this was what the arts, painting in particular, could do. And they do so by allowing our free hearts to participate in such depicted activities with joy. This would mark the overcoming of the kind of unfreedom I dubbed sociological. But it means that the other form of unfreedom, what I had called constitutive, is also overcome, precisely insofar as our feelings have become sites of free affirmation. For just as we might have thought, absent art making, that some socio sociological fact, like the necessity of labor, had been imposed upon us from the outside as a merely given, something which we could never affirm as our own, so too might we have thought that our own feelings were merely given, brutally there. And yet, certain kinds of artistic representations, Hegel claims, show that there is a way of affirming those feelings and their contents as our own as part of rational subjectivity. There are very interesting questions about the techniques by which that, representational te techniques, that is, by which that affirmation is rendered possible. For, as should be obvious, it is not every work of art, painting, musical composition, or poem that, simply by being a work of art, can effect this end. It would take a kind of gift to be able to represent the intertwining of subject and task, to represent the liveliness necessary to bring about the right kind of free heart in the viewer. Nor should one think that each of the arts does the exact same kind of work or in the exact same kind of way. I have thus far spoken of art making as an undifferentiated practice, but this is not Hegel's position. He makes distinctions between painting, music, poetry, and sculpture, and thinks of each as having a somewhat unique task, and indeed as being somewhat hierarchically ordered, with the more abstract music and poetry actually affording more privileged access to represent rational subjectivity. And it is one of the great strengths, I think, of Hegel's account that it is able to, in detail, track, track changes in all of these representational practices, poetry, music, painting, and the like. Byzantine icons obviously look very unlike Dutch interiors, and Hegel has a story about why that must be the case, why Byzantine saints are not and cannot be situated in a landscape while Dutch burghers must be. 
But I'm going to leave most of the details of Hegel's account of these various representational practices, their development, and the logic of their development from, as I just mentioned, something like Byzantine portraiture to Dutch interiors to the side for this evening and simply speak about what happens when the techniques are successful. For when those representational techniques deployed are successful, we can say what the results are. Not only are the sociological and constitutive forms of unfreedom overcome, still further, we might have, in meeting a work of art, intimation of all unfreedom being overcome. For, one Hegel, for when Hegel writes in perhaps his most transcendent and mysterious description of art making that, quote, the universal need for art is man's rational need to lift the inner and outer world into his spiritual consciousness as an object in which he recognizes his own self, we might think of this claim as bringing together and extending the two different forms of unfreedom I mentioned above. Now, we might say, the arts do not merely lift the outer, what I called crudely the sociological, nor the inner, what I called crudely the constitutive. The arts, in the act of representation, lift up both, and in so doing, allow the human subject to recognize again her own self. Indeed, one might almost say that the arts lift up all there is, and in so doing, allow us to recognize it as our own. Recognize would, however, need here to be understood as no mere seeing or propositional affirming. Recognize here would involve sensibly, feelingly affirming the truth, the rationality of what we beheld. But again, and this is the mysterious turn, what we are beholding is in some sense ourselves, the activity of our own mindedness. That is why it would be wrong to think of the two crudely described forms of unfreedom as distinct. When Hegel speaks of the intertwining of the Dutch burger with his labor, he isn't merely trying to elicit an affirmation of the value of labor, though he is doing that. He's not merely doing that because the intertwining on offer is not only between the burger and his world, but between the burger and himself. And, by extension, the intertwining is a representation of an intertwining within ourselves. And that intertwining, that rational self-relation of inner and outer, just is freedom. Nothing, then, we might hope, is merely, brutally given to human-mindedness. There is nothing, or at any rate need not be, anything presented to human consciousness from the outside. In contemporary discussions of idealism, this claim is most often framed as a claim about the contents of perceptual experience. Kant, the story goes, as the juniors well know, shows that there can be no brutally unconceptualized perceptual stuff impinging on consciousness from the outside, stuff which then gets acted upon by our conceptual activity, all of which then gets somehow put into the form of a judgment. This thesis, the story goes, is extended by Hegel, who frees it from the last vestiges of givenness that Kant himself had not exorcised. But this thesis about givenness is, I think, better best extracted from confines of talk of the structure of 
perceptual experience alone. This thesis about the impossibility of givenness is a local version of a global thesis about the impossibility of givenness. And in a turn that I find quite fine, it ends up being the case for Hegel that the work of art as something which is, in some sense, given to us, helps us affirm rationally and feelingly that there is, in fact, nothing brutally, merely given. Part two, giving. The epilogue to Heidegger's On the Origin of the Work of Art praises Hegel's aesthetics as, quote, the most comprehensive reflection on the nature of art that the West possesses. Comprehensive because it stems from metaphysics. And one can see why he might have said as much. For there is something deeply metaphysical about the claims that we have just seen, particularly that last claim about recognizing our own selves, our own free-mindedness in works of art. Heidegger then goes on to quote the very passages with which this lecture began. Art no longer counts for us as the highest manner in which truth obtains existence for itself. One may well hope that art will continue to advance and perfect itself, but its form has ceased to be the highest need of the spirit. Art is and remains for us something past. Heidegger says that we cannot yet know whether these judgments, these judgments of Hegel's, are true. Their truth, quote, has not yet been decided. And no decision can occur before other, still prior questions are asked. Comprehensive though Hegel's account might be, there is something, Heidegger thinks, uncomprehensive in it, something unasked. Indeed, we might say, something merely given. And that something which remains unasked, unexamined, merely given, is what Heidegger calls the work character of the work of art. Hegel is not alone in not having pursued this prior question about the work character of the work of art. Quote, the way in which, this is Heidegger, quote, the way in which aesthetics views the artwork from the outset has been dominated by the traditional interpretation of all beings. But the shaking of this accustomed formulation is not the essential point. What matters is a first opening of our vision to the fact that what is workly in the work, equipmental in equipment, and thing-like in the thing, comes closer to us only when we think the being of beings. The thingly feature, he continues, in the work should not be denied. But if it belongs to the work being of the work, it must be conceived by way of the work's workly nature. I recognize this sounds obscure, and mysterious, and indirect, with all of its talk of what is workly in work, equipmental in equipment, thingly in things. But I hope that it should be clear what the basic structure of the claim is here. And that basic structure is, I think, the following. The work of art is not simply one more thing that we encounter alongside tables and chairs and hammers and shoes. There are works, and there are things, and there is equipment, and each has its own distinctive mode of being. That's just what it means to investigate the workly character of the work. And it's also why it means that we must begin any inquiry into the work of art by first establishing what the workly character of the work of art is. To fail to do so would be to treat all of these items, works, equipment, things, as somehow on a level. It would be, to put it most grandly, to think, to fail to think the being of beings. And, slightly less grandly, 
to fail to think just what a work, as opposed to a thing or a piece of equipment, in fact is. But what is the workly character of the work? Here is Heidegger's formulation. The artwork opens up in its own way the being of beings. This opening up, this uncovering, that is, the truth of beings, happens in the work. In the artwork, the truth of what is sets itself to work. Art is truth setting itself to work. But what does this mean, opening up the being of beings? Heidegger famously appeals in the essay to a painting by Van Gogh of a pair of shoes. We have er already heard in the mysterious quote with which I began this section, Heidegger's admonition that we not take such items like shoes things that we encounter in use as mere things, let alone as works. These things, these items, these shoes have, like all equipment, their own special mode of being. And it is that mode of being, a mode of being that does not, because it need not typically come into view, that the work of art allows to be opened up. Quote, the artwork lets us know what shoes are in truth. Van Gogh's painting is the disclosure of what the equipment, the pair of shoes, is in truth. This entity emerges into the unconcealedness of its being. We say, truth, and we think little enough in using this word. But if there occurs in the work a disclosure of a particular being, like shoes, disclosing what and how it is, then there is, Heidegger says, a happening of truth at work. Thus, he again affirms, the nature of art would be this, the truth of beings setting itself to work. But it would be a mistake, I think, to suggest that all an artwork does is to allow the truth of beings, by which I mean something like discrete individual things, to show up as if the only task of the work of art were to bring into relief one by one the truth of beings, first shoes, then hammers, then desks, and so on and so forth. That's not the case. There is a kind of totalizing quality that the work of art has, a quality that Heidegger describes as the work's ability to open up and hold in force a world. To be a work, he writes, means to set up a world. And a world, he continues, is not the mere collection of the countable or uncountable, familiar and unfamiliar things that are just there, as if the work of art just somehow created the totality of things they are. That's not what it means to set up a world. But the work of art does somehow, and a lot obviously turns on that somehow, it allows for that totality of things to show up for us as the things they are. This comes out of Heidegger's description of another work of art, the Greek temple at Egina. The temple work, he writes, standing there, opens up a world and at the same time sets this world back again on earth, which itself only thus emerges as native ground. But men and animals, plants and things are never present and familiar as unchangeable objects, only to represent also a fitting environment for the temple which one fine day is added to what is already there. We shall get closer to what is the truth of the matter, rather, if we think all this in the reverse order. What does that all mean? The wrong order is in thinking the thought 
setting up a world. The wrong order is to imagine that first there are men and animals and plants and pathways, and to this collection is added a temple one fine day. No, those very items, men, animals, plants, and pathways, only show up as the things they are because the temple, the work of art, has allowed them to so appear. How very far we are, I think, at the moment from the account with which we began. In the first section of this essay, during our encounter with Hegel's writings on the work of art, the question was all about the individual subject, her free-mindedness, the way that her freedom could be felt, and the conditions without which it was not possible to be feelingly affirmed. Now the individual knowing subject standing over and against a world has disappeared completely. In its place are much more primitive, not in the pejorative sense, relations. Everything that seems to be happening in Heidegger's essay feels prior, if not prior in time, to what we saw in the first part of tonight's essay. Now the relevant issues are the work of art's peculiar ability to first set up a world. Again, where that means something like allow entities to show up as the entities they are, the Egina Temple, Egina Temple example, and then discreetly to reveal the being of beings, the Van Gogh shoe example. But this distance, the distance between the two accounts should be no surprise to those familiar with Heidegger's general critique of post-Kantian idealism. It's just left, post-Kantian idealism, that is, the central question, the question of being unasked. But, and this was, in a way, the point of departure for this essay, the essay I've written, what is one supposed to do in such a situation? I feel myself time and again buffeted back and forth, drawn to affirm the power of an account that allows me to say that the work of art does, in fact, allow me to see and feel my own free subjectivity. And then some moments later, I am forced to ask whether this all has not begun much, much too far downstream, whether all this talk of entwining and reconciliation has taken up the matter far too late and far too indiscriminately whether what one needed were distinctions first in modes of being and an account of how anything could show up as the thing that it is in the first place, not an account of how I, the perceiving subject, stood over and against it. The work of art wouldn't then be a matter of overcoming givenness. The work of art would be a matter instead of recognizing giving. Recognizing, that is, that a world of meaningfulness had been opened up first, a world that I then went on to encounter. And this, to me, feels like a position of despair. It was an attempt to leave this condition of despair that I have worked on this essay, worked to think of a way to think through the way in which I felt pulled apart, pulled in both directions, a way to honor a colleague who, in a faculty seminar, pointed to one of Cezanne's portraits of his wife and said to me, don't you see those colors there, the way they glimmer? That is the picture of what makes mindedness possible. And when he said this, I felt that he, despite his antipathy for all things Heideggerian, and all my sympathy for the impossibility of there being anything merely given to mind, he had somehow to be right. And so that meant that there had to be some way of thinking these two positions together, not simply offering them, as I fear is typically done, as two options available, as one might then choose according to one's taste, but with no hope of their ever being brought meaningfully together. 
It is, of course, understandable that the two positions are often offered just as alternatives. There is clearly no possibility that they could be simply merged. If there is any way of holding them together, it will not come from a procedure like that. And I hope the impossibility of such a procedure has been clear this evening. But if it's not, let me quickly draw attention to two further features of Heidegger's account, which make it simply incompatible with Hegel's. Recall the following two claims of Heidegger's about the work of art. First, if there occurs in the work a disclosure of a particular being disclosing what and how it is, then there is here an occurring, a happening of truth at work. And second, the artwork opens up in its own way the being of beings. This opening up, this uncovering, that is, the truth of beings, happens in the work. Earlier, we drew attention to and indeed marveled at the stakes, the seriousness, the ambition of claims like this. The work of art disclosed truth, and not just any truth, but the truth of beings. What I did not draw attention to is the mode of this disclosure, which is just as present in the quotations I just read. The mode of that disclosure is the mode of a happening, an occurrence, and such a mode is simply not at all amenable to account giving. It is, by definition, outside account giving. It is something that simply happens to the human being. But the opening section of this essay was designed to show the impossibility of just that. There is nothing outside the conceptual. There is nothing barely, brutally there for mind. Not a perceptual stuff, not a labor, and not an event. And so any attempt to straightforwardly merge these two positions would be like yoking the non-conceptual to the conceptual, grounding the conceptual on the non-conceptual. And that makes no sense. And this is not even to mention the fact that for Heidegger, the disclosure and uncovering of the truth of beings is not an unalloyed good. Although the language surrounding disclosure and uncovering in the origin of the work of art essay is relatively neutral, it's clear from other parts of his corpus that all of these disclosings and uncoverings are not simply moments of lucidity. They are just as equally moments of loss or worse. Heidegger speaks of disclosure and unconcealing as robbery. If this robbery, he writes, belongs to the concept of truth, then it says that the entity must be wrested from concealedness. Concealedness must be taken from the entity. And this is because our pre-reflective encounter with entities is always richer, always richer than what we are able to say about them after they've been disclosed, after they emerge from pre-reflective pre-conceptual concealment. And so, again, to simply bring the Heideggerian position into the Hegelian one would entail bringing a kind of darkness and unknowing into an attempt to dispel just that. These are, at any rate, the official ways of reading Heidegger on events and unconcealing. I think that there are reasons for thinking that they are not the official ways, that is, always entirely correct especially when one focuses on the work of our essay. I, for one, cannot quite see how the disclosures that happen in the Van Gogh painting or the temple at Egina or either of the two poems Heidegger mentions in the essay also simultaneously conceal are also instances of robbery. And so one strategy that one might take in order to bring the two positions, Heidegger's and Hegel's, together would be to say that Heidegger's own text simply doesn't sustain his claims, claims made elsewhere, about concealment and robbery. That might allow one to then just start speaking of the two positions, Hegel's and Heidegger's, as equally committed to a metaphysics of the work of art as truth-revealing, 
full stop. Alternatively, one might try to resist the description of the event of truth as a sort of non-conceptual phenomenon. And that way, if one did this, there would be no yoking of the non-conceptual to the conceptual, only two moments in the self-revelation of the conceptual. And I think that there is some evidence in Heidegger's essay that this, too, is a possibility. The essay's structure, though often pejoratively described as meandering and disjointed, not to say unclear, is, I think, a model of what it looks like to ask a question and then attempt to answer it. Along the way, one happens upon other questions, and Heidegger often says as much. But there is no reason to think that these happenings, the happenings of question asking and answering, are somehow outside of the conceptual. So why should we think that the happening of truth's disclosure is itself outside the conceptual? I think that both of these paths, then, of tugging Heidegger toward Hegel are tempting and attractive. I concede that in so doing, or embarking on either one of them, one risks doing violence to Heidegger and stripping him of the destructive, or stripping him of some of his destructive, corrosive critique of metaphysics. But I think that that would certainly be, certainly be preferred to a mere throwing up of hands a mere throwing up of hands in pure indecision, Hegel or Heidegger. All the same, I am not going to pursue, per, pursue in the few moments that follow either one of these paths. I am rather going to simply begin from a moment in Heidegger's essay that is not accorded any interest, or if it is, is simply shrugged away. And from this moment, I will try to see what possibilities remain for bringing the two positions together. Late in the essay, Heidegger offers a final characterization of the work character of the work. We can pause here to quickly recall that the first work character of the work was the disclosure of the happening of truth, the second, the establishing of a world of significance. Both of these characterizations were somehow related to what was represented by or in the work itself, a temple, a pair of shoes. But this final characterization, by contrast, does not have anything to do with what is represented in or by the work itself. It simply has to do with the fact that the work itself is. Quote, in contrast to all other modes of production, the work is distinguished by being created so that its createdness is part of the created work. But isn't this true of everything brought forth? No, says Heidegger. He continues, everything brought forth surely has the endowment of having been brought forth. But in the work of art, createdness is expressly created into the created being so that it, createdness, stands out from the being thus brought forth. Createdness, Heidegger goes on to clarify, has nothing at all to do with the impression given by the work that it was made by a particular person, least of all some great artist. The createdness that belongs to the work character of the work simply makes known, quote, that such a work is at all rather than is not. In a work, he continues, the fact that it is a work is just what is unusual. The event of its being created does not simply reverberate through the work. Rather, the work casts before itself the, the eventful fact that the work is as this work, and it has this fact constantly about itself. 
Mysterious though this is, this strikes me as profoundly and beautifully true. And it seems to me to depend not at all on some of the other strange and I think non-conceptual language of events and robbery and the like. Language that made us wonder whether in being drawn to the Heideggerian account, we would necessarily have to resign ourselves to a kind of unre unreasoned mysticism, resigned our resign ourselves to happenings outside the space of the conceptual, happenings to which the free activity of mind has no access. I see no reason, however, to think that this would be true of the most recent characterization I've just given of the work of art. That the work of art makes known above all, el above all else the fact that such a work is, rather than is not. That, as I said above, strikes me as beautifully true to the experience of the gratuity of the work of art. That what we experience in an encounter with the work of art is something like astonishment that it is there at all. So unnecessary and superfluous is it. This is not a theological claim, Heidegger insists. It is grounded merely in the experience of an encounter with the work of art. I think that this, the insistence that the claim is not theological, invites and should invite considerable skepticism. But I think that this skepticism is somewhat of a piece in its more pejorative forms, with what seems to me to be a failure to take seriously Heidegger's question in his introduction to metaphysics, why there is something rather than nothing. I confess that for me, this will always be the most powerful, most mysterious, most haunting question in philosophy. But I also confess that the terms in which the question is posed by Heidegger himself why is there something rather than nothing makes it easy to dismiss. For by appealing to some bare something, some collection of stuff, one might simply find it acceptable to shrug one's shoulders. But the question is not, I think, why is there some bare thing, some bare collection rather than nothing? It is rather, why is there this totality of meaningfulness rather than nothing? And it is here again that I appeal to our experience of the work of art. For I think that Heidegger, for I think that when Heidegger says that the work character of the work of art is that it is there, he has in fact left off something deeply important. And that is the way that the work of art is all over and in each and every part meaningfully there. There are no portions of the work of art that do not bear meaning. And so one, when one hears from him that what is most significant about the work of art is that it is there, the claim that I called true to our experience of the work's gratuity, this needs to be supplemented. The work is meaningfully there in a totality, as a totality of meaningfulness in each and every part. That is the fact, to use Heidegger's words again, that the work constantly has, again, constantly has about itself. Given and giving. Heidegger might not have neglected, excuse me, Heidegger might have neglected to note this all over quality of the work of art's meaningfulness, but Hegel did not. Art, he writes, quote, makes every one of its productions into a thousand-eyed Argus whereby the inner soul and spirit is seen at every point. And it is not only the bodily form, the look of the eyes, the countenance and posture, but also actions and events, speech and tones of voice, and the series of their course through all conditions of appearance that art has everywhere to make into an eye, an eye in which the free soul is revealed in its inner infinity. In Hegel's own striking formulation, the work of art looks out at the viewer like a 1,000-eyed Argus. Every nook, every corner, every bit of color, every line, every word, every particle, all of it, each and every, each and every bit, looking out with solicitous meaningfulness. But what is it that looking into this 1,000-eyed Argus reveals to us? Hegel's answer the free soul in its inner infinity. 
to which one might respond with jubilation, the soul in its infinity revealed at every point, what more could one ask for than the possibility of seeing and thereby affirming fully and feelingly that we are free, self-determining beings? And yet, in another mood, perhaps only a moment later, one might begin to wonder whether that satisfaction is, in fact, enough. For the satisfactions of the free soul in its inner infinity are satisfactions that can come about only within a totality of meaningfulness that the human subject finds herself already in. Within, that is, the fact that there is a totality of meaningfulness that gives itself to the human being. This is as close as I can come to a statement of how it is that I have thought myself from the language of parts of Heidegger's own text out of my despair. The despair of thinking that there is no way of bringing these two supremely attractive positions together. I certainly have my doubts that it is a secure position of rest. Isn't all Heidegger's talk of the work's creation simply disguised theological talk? Is that the reason I'm drawn to it? Or even if it is not, what about this totality of meaningfulness? Is that not just one more bit of givenness, something prior to mind and therefore not really intelligible in itself? In the post-idealist tradition, it has seemed a pressing problem to somehow bring together the infinity of free subjectivity together with the naturalness of the human subject. That the human subject is, on the one hand, unconstrained and self-determining, and on the other, a material body subject to law in the same way as any other material body. This has been described following Hegel as the human subject's amphibian status, as if the human being were somehow uneasily situated between a world of free self-determination and a world of law. But this, I think, is a Super Bowl problem and one I think that Hegel can show us how to avoid, not tonight, but in principle, he can. There is only first personal experience no possibility of being disposed toward the world as a mere material being of law. That is just what it means, I think, to overcome any and all givenness. The constraints of law just are our constraints. But there is, in fact, a kind of doubleness to human life. The doubleness that comes from, on the one hand, coming to affirm and coming to rational and affective satisfaction, on the one hand, and on the other, acknowledging that this happens only within a totality of meaningfulness that gives itself to mind. This, this is the doubleness of the human being, and this is the doubleness that presents itself in the work of art, the doubleness that comes from looking into the infinite with only two eyes. Thank you.